This is Matthew Putman, and you're listening to Utility Function. I had a great time speaking with Henry Fisker on this podcast today. He is a complete legend in design. You've seen some of his cars, I'm sure, the BMW Z8, the Aston Martin DB9, the Aston Martin V8 Vantage, and many others. But now he is revolutionizing electric vehicles. He's the chairman and the CEO of Fisker Inc. that's based in California. I really feel that his game-changing battery solutions are something that will change the world in a major way. I love the way that Henrik looks at the total experience of owning a vehicle, uh, whether it's for speed or just the joy of, of ownership. So much to talk to uh, Henrik about. Um, I hope to someday have that conversation in person, and I also hope someday to be able to drive one of these beautiful and powerful cars. <laughs> Enjoy the conversation. Matt, this means so much to me that you did this. This is one of these that's extremely exciting to me. Uh, as uh, I'm, you know, I'm really interested in, you know, you've made some of the most beautiful cars that people recognize, um, but now you're dealing and you have been with some of the biggest engineering challenges and production challenges that the world has ever seen. But I, I think of you as a designer. Is, is the design mindset still with you at all times during this process? Yeah, you know, I'm always thinking as a designer, and I think whatever I look at, uh, you know, I always think about how could I do that better, even if it's not a car, it might be a house or a plate or a candle holder, it doesn't really matter. I always think design in my mind. Uh, I, I think about both functionality and beauty, uh, but of course, cars is is what I love the most, and uh you know, I, I I can't wait every time to start another project, another car project. Uh, I love to, specifically in the early concept phase, you know, when you're still working with clay, uh, being with the clay modelers, sort of sculpturing the, the shapes. That's what excites me a lot. Have you always thought of cars as being the thing? I mean, does this go back to when you were a kid or is this something that you studied? No, I think, yeah, you know, I think all kids probably at least until this point in time played with cars. Maybe in the future they're going to play with other things, but I played with cars. And then there's sort of that moment when you maybe are, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, whenever it happens that most kids swerve off and start doing other things, school and you know, whatever the sports. And I just kind of stood, stayed with the cars. It just never left me. So even when I was, you know, in my teenage, I've always like wanted to be a car designer. I wanted to sign cars. And of course, growing up in Denmark at the time, my, uh, my council, jobs council advisor at school told me there is no such thing as being a car designer. You can become an engineer. And I said, no, I want to be a car designer. I read in America, there's a school called Arts and the College of Design in Pasadena in California. So in the end, I actually ended up going to that school. They had a branch in Switzerland where I went. And later, uh, when no one did a few talks at the school here in, in California, but graduated from there. And that's really how I, I got into car design. But it's a tough business to get into because it's not sort of a typical way of, of getting an education. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, it's it's such a, a, a large um 
a high risk, something that I feels like it hadn't involved uh, in some way, except for on the design side, maybe. And then you could argue whether design was better or worse, yourself excluded. I'm just in general, uh, you know, I look at a lot of cars now and, and they tend to look similar. Uh, whereas I look at cars from when I was growing up uh, and, and you had some very distinct design. Do you think that has to do with the car industry or do you think it's just a, a aesthetics in general have changed to more uniform thinking? No, I think particularly the car industry have gone through sort of a stale period in the last, I would say, 20, 30 years um, where, you know, we moved from pure passion in the car industry where design had a very important role. And then we moved into an era of cost cutting and a lot of new legislation. And everybody was trying to find out with all that new investment in safety features, technology, how do we cut costs, that the general car industry became very big, meaning that you ended up with some giant car companies um, that was sort of run as well-oiled machines to provide, uh, you know, to provide products for people to move around in. And it became more of an appliance than uh, an exciting product. Uh, and, and, you know, there was no real competition to the established car industry. So they sort of slowly fell a bit asleep. And, uh, you know, you didn't have a choice. You just had to take whatever they offered you. And I think what happened in the last sort of five years, suddenly there's a huge, um, you know, influx of choice from startup companies, and that has revitalized the car industry. And I think that's important. Yeah, the, the startup mentality is something that plays out in in many different ways. I mean, I, I've been uh, with previous businesses and in general, sort of a supplier to the car industry, you know, usually, you know, somewhere down the chain. Some, and it's been a, I think a kind of troubled supply chain for a long time. Uh, car companies looked inc felt incredibly powerful even when they became less powerful or started to be disrupted. Uh, we see this, I think, a little bit with the chip shortage going on in the world right now. Is is not is I'm not saying it's caused necessarily by uh, large automotive companies, but it certainly didn't help in some ways. Uh, I, it, I would have never thought that the car industry would be something that would be disrupted the way that you're trying to do. And that's re it's really exciting. Yeah. I mean, tell me a little bit about, uh, about the business and where you guys are in the business. Okay. So, yeah. So I, I think that, um, you know, of course, going through COVID in one hand hit the car industry uh, quite a lot, but I also think that, you know, specifically at Fisker, what we were looking at was it doesn't necessarily have to hit us, even though there's a chip shortage, because those chips were for specific items in the vehicle. And we were developing uh, our technology and vehicles knowing of this chip shortage. So we're actually using different chips in our vehicles. So that's number one. Number two, I think COVID for all of us was a big change in our working environment where we suddenly you know, are doing Zoom calls. Normally I would be in maybe in the studio with you and doing recording together. Oh, I would have liked that. Now we're doing everything in Zoom. <laughs> and, and I, you know, but the interesting thing is that Fisker Inc. was born during the COVID and during Zoom. So for us, it was natural. I guess it's like a kid that grew up during COVID. For them, it became natural. So we didn't really see 
any real negative impacts on our timeline, on the way we worked. We were super efficient. We hired probably over 150 people during COVID and never met any of them. They all hired through Zoom, started through Zoom. We did water cooler meetings on Zoom because we wouldn't know we wouldn't meet them at the water cooler. So we kind of came up with all these techniques to keep the action going, to stay on time, and it has worked fine. So we didn't really see any negative uh, things happening. Of course, I'm missing to hang out with people, and I think creativity prospers more when you're interacting with people in person. But we found a way to get around it. I'm looking forward to get back to work, but uh, you know, we, we dealt with it. Yeah. So, so now I guess you are in at work now, right? You guys are back of, of as I think, you know, we actually stayed going through the whole thing for better or for worse. But I'd love to just hear a little bit about the process, right? So forgetting the business, right? I mean, the business aspects and supply chains. And I kind of only brought that up, not because I'm that uh, interested in how uh, how uh, you deal with suppliers, but only because of you know whether uh, how much disruption the industry actually needs and where you come in is the only reason I really brought it up. But I'm I'm interested in your process. Uh, it, is it how different is it now um, when you're when you're doing design? What is the collaborative nature of it? Is there anything you could talk about? Yeah, I, you know, it depends, of course, what company you're talking about. I think if you talk about a traditional large car company, they in the meantime have enormous teams, enormous departments that takes very long time to get something off the ground because everybody has to agree and and you know you're following old processes at Fisker, you know, one of the key differentiators and what we felt we could do something different was by accelerating product development. So instead of taking normally more than four years to develop a car, we take less than two and a half years. Now that's only possible if you're extremely fast in some of the decision-making. And, you know, in one way, I guess we're lucky that I'm both CEO and chief designer. Uh, and in charge of product planning. So therefore, I can make all these decisions extremely quick. Uh, but I would say I'm myself working on the clay model in the studio on every single car. But of course, we have a team of designers. We have two uh, amazing design directors, both female for external and interior, and they have a team. So of course, there's a lot of execution that has to happen. And there's also a lot of great ideas that has to be put on the table and we have to discuss and make the right decisions. So it's not a one-man show, uh, but I'm definitely very involved. And I think it's important because design is one of the few things developing vehicles for billions of dollars where there is no formula written down for how to make a good design. There's formulas for efficient motors. There's formulas for efficient battery packs. There's formulas for stiffness in the chassis but there is no formula for good design. So that part, I think we can take a clear lead in at Fisker. We have created a very unique process to always arrive to the best possible design. And that's something we kind of keep, I think, secret within Fisker. How do we do that? Um, but I think I've spearheaded that. And I think it's one of our secret weapons, quite frankly. Yeah, I, I, I love, one of the reasons I really wanted to, to speak with you is that I love the type of risk associated with with uh, the, what you do. I mean, you mentioned some of this is that 
in the end, if the design is no good, if the company doesn't work, if <laughs> all of these things, it, all, it does fall to you. If it does work, then, the, then you know, this is a, a vision that was yours. Putting your name on a company uh, is something that isn't a new idea, but is not at all what goes on now. Right? And I, I actually admire this enormously. It's one more level of standing behind something in a way, you know, that I always think of these, how we all tie our identities to either our jobs or art or whatever it is we do. You're, you're very, very publicly doing this. Uh, I find that uh, very unsilicon Valley in a way. <laughs> do you think of this often? I mean, how, how does this put extra pressure? Is this make it, is, is there, what, what are the emotions tied to such responsibility for your own identity? Well, I, you know, it, it's, so obviously I, I went through Fisker 1.0 and as I left the company and eventually some other people, you know, uh, took this through bankruptcy, uh, I got blamed for pretty much everything because my name was on the building, right? So people left and nobody ever remembered their names, but they remembered my name. And uh, that's one of the negatives of having your name on the building. And yet you did it again. <laughs> I did it again. You know, I, I took a lot of beating, but I felt a little bit like maybe a boxer that was knocked out in the 11th round and felt like I need, I couldn't just leave my life with a knockout. I had to kind of come back in the ring and just make sure that I finished the job. I kind of felt I was born to do this and I, I felt I must do this. I felt like I've been given a certain talent and I needed to use that talent and not just bury it in the ground and forget about it. Uh, I think people who don't use a talent, you know, they don't do justice to themselves and everybody else. And I think this is, this is what I'm good at and I should be using it. And all the learnings, quite frankly, from Fisco 1.0, I, I think was very important to take to take to, to Fisco 2.0, Fisco Inc. Uh, and I think a lot of the investors ultimately that came in early in these rounds that we did realized that actually there's so much risk and there's so many basic mistakes that can cost tens of millions, hundreds of millions. And if we don't have to do those because you already know about where these pitfalls are, this actually is quite good. So, so I think that was important. Now, coming back to having a name in the building and the risk, uh, of course, it's clear that this is not something that you know you take lightly. There is no leaving your job and taking another job. This is what I have to do, and that's it. And that means you know 100% commitment. Uh, you you get everything from me seven days a week. Whenever my uh, I'm whenever my brain is awake, I sometimes I even dream about Fisker Inc. When I'm not awake, so I'm in this 100%. And and I think that might bring a certain value as well. I think you have seen it, you know, if I look at a company like Ford Motor Company through the years, uh, even in the difficult years in 2008, you know, the Ford family, of course, their name is in the building and they have in many difficult times stepped in and, and done radical things, whether it was Bill running it or, you know, putting the Ford brand up to, to uh, uh, you know, get money to carry on during the difficulties in 2008. So I think when you, your name is on the building, when you're 
when you're a majority or large owner or stakeholder, you're going to go way beyond what any normal CEO would do because you have all the skin in your game. You have your heart in this game. You have your life in this game. And that is different than a job. Yeah, I remember I, I was uh, close with um, Edouard Michelin. Um, and, you know, you had this entire town in France um, that, that was a Michelin, you know, third generation or fourth generation Michelin town. He unfortunately passed early on a, a boat, boat accident. It was the last time there was a Michelin running the company. And it felt, it, it, it felt like it became a corporation then and not a personal passion. I, it, it's, I think it's an amazing company still, but it was there. You could definitely see this switch between what you do in order to keep not the, it's not just the name. It's the, it's, it's who has worked in order to make this thing special and happen. Um, and so, yeah, I have enormous respect for that and the fact that you're doing this and uh, let's talk about tech a little bit. I mean, you know, it has, has EV always been something that, that you thought was going to be the future? You know, my father uh, was an electric electrical engineer, and he worked with electric motors for many other applications of automotive, had his own company in Denmark. So I kind of grew up around electric motors, but I never thought in the early days that I would go into electric cars. However, by default, my very first program at BMW as a young designer in 1989 was actually BMW's first electric called the E1. And I worked at that on that. It was a very strange thing back in 1989 to work in an electric car uh, because nobody was really interested in that. Uh, it was really came out of this uh, California rule at the time where they had trying to push for electric cars in California. So that gave me the first insight. And the second one was really one I saw Leonardo DiCaprio drive around the Toyota Prius and I thought you know this guy needs a better car <laughs> a better looking car I'm sure he can afford one so that kind of inspired me a, a bit and then of course I did a little bit of work with Tesla in the early early days with uh, Elon um, and uh, now we, we unfortunately got into a bit of a, a legal dispute later which was solved but you know, of course, um, having seen where, where Tesla's going, I think it's pretty clear for everybody, actually, that electrification is not only coming, it's here to stay. Um, and I, I think, quite frankly, my love for cars is pushing me even stronger towards electrification. And that is maybe the opposite of what many diehard car guys or car girls are thinking. But reality is, if we still want to have our personal transportation in 10 years from now, if we still want to jump out in a cool car and drive wherever we want in anywhere, in any city center, the only way that's going to work is if it's going to be an electric car. Otherwise, legislation and politicians are going to ban cars, no inner cities for pollution reasons. And we're going to end up having to be forced into types of transportation, whether it's public or whatever, that we don't really want. Let's face it, individual private transportation is the coolest thing ever. And it goes back thousands of years, you know, when people used to own a horse. And it was not just any horse. It was a beautiful horse. It was a fast horse. Private transportation is, for me, so ingrained in humanity. We will never, ever leave it. 
I don't care how many ride hailing companies and how many amazing buses that are made. That's all great. We should use it. But to have your own private transportation, there is nothing that compares to that. And, and the only way we can guarantee that to continue is if we make it emission free. Do you, what do you think about autonomous vehicles in thinking this way? So I would think of autonomous vehicles as being sort of a, ne a next step, but infrastructure will be different, but also the sense of ownership may feel different. Do, do you have any feelings about that? As I'm yeah, sure you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think autonomous vehicles, anything else than an extension of mobility needs you know we started out with trains and buses and then we got planes and you know now we're getting we're thinking about you know all kind of other forms of you know semi uh you know private transportation it could be car sharing it could be you know the ride hailing uber and lyft uh i think autonomous vehicles is just another form of a tool that we will have when we just want to get transported. But there's a difference between wanting to get transported and wanting to drive. It's just like there's a difference between getting fed during the week and then going for an amazing meal prepared by an amazing chef, you know, drinking beautiful wine, looking at how well it's done on the plate. Do we really need that? No, we don't need it. We can do without all that. We could just eat a pill every day and we could eat oatmeal for breakfast and that's about it. But reality is we like to enjoy life. And I think one of life's enjoyments is driving your own car, looking at a beautiful car, interacting with it. Do, do we need to do that every day when we're going to work? Maybe not. Maybe in the future we turn on our FI pilot or whatever we call it, and we get taken to work because we are busy on our phone or whatever. But I think there's going to be moments where we still want to enjoy being in control of this beast, which we call a car. It was just like when people are able to control a horse, you know, and tame it and be able to ride it. That's an amazing feeling of achievement. There is zero achievement getting on a bus. There's going to be zero achievement getting into a fully autonomous vehicle. So therefore, it doesn't really poke the senses that we like to have poked because that keeps us alive. You know, when we smell an amazing meal, when we see a beautiful decorated something, those senses I think we need to keep alive. And part of those senses is what I want to fulfill with beautiful cars that you can drive. And hopefully we can still be allowed to do that in the future. We'll see. Uh, but I'm pretty sure we will because reality is self-driving cars are expensive, just like an airplane ticket is expensive. And we can't have everybody cannot afford airplane tickets. Not everybody can afford an autonomous car. So whatever, you know, the Ford F-150 that Ford sells today that are not autonomous, somebody in 20 years will buy that used for a thousand bucks and drive to work. And that means that person won't have an autonomous car. So I think you're still going to see interaction of autonomous and non-autonomous cars in 20 years from now. Do you think that the, you mentioned um, DiCaprio getting out of a Prius uh, and, if, and that you were actually working on a BMW in 1989 that was uh, electric. Do you think that the Prius set back um, uh, electric vehicles because people associated it with something slow? Um, or do you think that it was, it was a useful step? You know, I think 
I, I was never a fan of the Prius. I mean, it's not really a good looking vehicle, but what it did was by being slightly odd, it sort of was the first vehicle that put a stamp on sort of look at me. I am doing something for the environment. I'm driving a more fuel efficient, cleaner vehicle, even though it was a hybrid. So I don't know that it set it back. I think it was slightly helped in the sense that a lot of people that felt that they wanted to show they want to do something that became kind of for a certain period of time, the choice of vehicle. I think in the meantime, it's clear that Toyota missed uh, the opportunity to carry that legacy on. And now it's just become another hybrid uh, that really doesn't set any unique standards. But I think we are now moving into electrification and it's a whole new game. And I think you're going to see some new exciting vehicles, for, for example, from Fisker that's going to come out where, we want people to be able to go along for this ride that goes beyond just driving an electric vehicle, but really saying we are driving a sustainable, cool vehicle. And that's why we are doing this big effort in, in adding recycled materials. We have set a goal of a climate neutral car for 2027. We're making a radical car with Foxconn coming out in the end of 23. And then, of course, we're launching the ocean next year. So we want to take that next step where people can really indulge in kind of getting a cool car, but also sustainability of the future. Yeah, you, yeah, you really are trying to hit all points being several different status symbol things being that you're, you know, somebody is green, they care about the environment, there's, they have a cool looking car, they have a fast car, and you try to roll all of these together and, you, and it is sort of a formula for... That, and and the part that I hadn't thought about as much is the the personal ownership of the experience still exists. It's funny that that used to be a huge part of it in my mind, hmm. and it's sort of moved away from from me. I mean, I I, I I don't drive the way I used to, you know. I was the and and one thing may be is that everything seems the same now, and this is something different. It's a different mentality as much as it is even a different vehicle. Kind of really interesting. Do you think? Uh, do you think that there will be electric vehicles in Formula One instead of just having the um, electric uh, equivalent? Yeah, absolutely. I think that at, you know, in the end of the day, racing is a reflection of new technologies. Uh, you know, that are coming into the future. And if you look in the history of racing, it was always racing was always about trying out new technologies that were even better, even faster. You know, and you're trying the racetrack, and then a few years later, you saw some of that technology adapted. Now it's almost the opposite way. You're seeing these electric supercars coming out that are faster than Formula One cars. And I think Formula One either is falling behind it, becoming a retro race, like Milimilia in Italy, where you drive old cars, historic cars, or it has to reinvent itself and again take the lead in technology. So they probably have a huge task. What are they going to do? Because there's, of course, Formula E, uh, which are already doing it. And there is uh, uh, Extreme E, which we looked at, at, at getting into as well as another electric off-road race. So I think Formula One is going to have to make some big decisions in the next three to four years. Are we going to become uh, more of a uh, historic race series? Or are we actually going to, again, become the leaders of technology? And if they do want to become the Technology leaders, they're going to have to go electric. Be cool to have a uh, Fisker in Formula One. 
That would be super cool. Hey, anything is possible. <laughs> Absolutely. Is, is there anything you'd like to talk about? I mean, to chat about? No, I think you've you've touched uh, you know on on a lot of the the the, the things. I, maybe one thing I want to mention you you talked about you know today. Where's the car industry? A lot of cars look the same. Uh, I I think electrification and moving into this new era offers a lot of opportunities to actually go back and create some more exciting design. We have more freedom with electric vehicles. But I also think the push from some of the startups is sort of revitalized the industry. And I think, quite frankly, the competition have never been so tough. You have never, ever seen in the last 50 years a remote possibility that any of the established car companies would be challenged by a startup. And we have already seen that happening, of course, with Tesla. And we're seeing it. It's going to happen with Fisker. You know, we already have 16,000 orders for our Fisker Ocean without any marketing. And those those people came from somewhere. They came from some other brand and a lot of them from established car brands. So the, the competition is fierce. And I'm very happy that we have some kind of intangible assets like our super fast development plan, which allows us to put, you know, more technology in our vehicles, uh, newer technology just before launch. I'm happy that we are so emphasized on sustainability and design because that's an intangible that, uh, you know, is is something where we can really take the lead. Uh, so I think it's an exciting environment. I think it's super exciting for the consumer. They're going to have amazing choice that they've never seen in the last 30, 40 years. So I expect that the cars that's going to come out for consumers in the next three or four years is going to completely change the landscape of, of, you know, even who's the winners and who's taking the most market share. It's really cool. I mean, I have a 10-year-old boy. I'm excited to see by the time he's able to drive, he will be he will be as excited about the car that he can look to and dreamed one day have as, as we were when we were kids. And so come out of it and maybe even work in the industry and it look like a glamorous, wonderful job, not an old industry. And I think that you're really help you make that possible. But so thank you so much. I'm really glad to chat. I do wish we were doing it together. It would have been a lot more fun, but uh, it's still, it's great to, it's great to meet you. 